Hi, Robert. Hey, Jaron. So uh, I'm, I'm traveling, I'm on the road, but um, we thought we'd talk today about uh, a few articles that have come out around this whole issue of, uh, you know, government central planning, trying to plan the economy, the extent to which it's successful or not successful, and in specifically the, the kind of how this fits into the whole view of ingenuism. And there was an article by um, Noah Opinion, who has a substack, which is, uh, which I think we both get. And, uh, you know, a lot of people have argued that China's uh, counterexample to those of us who argue that government shouldn't centrally plan and shouldn't get too involved because look, they centrally plan and they've had the fastest economic growth in human history. They've gone, they brought a billion, you know, over a billion people out of poverty. They've, uh, completely restructured the economy. They've done these amazing things. And, and, and look, they did it with government policy. And, uh, and there's, a, I guess, an e-book out uh, kind of challenges this. Yeah, uh, I, I have seen the same kind of, of claims. And it's something that we have to deal with here at Ingenuism because you know, the, the, the conclusion of ingenuism is that if you don't allow for experimentation, you don't allow for failure, if you try and manage everything from the top down, that you're going to see much lower progress than you would if you allowed for things to sort of self-emerge. Uh, and China looks like an, a counterexample of that, and a lot of people present that as a counterexample. And then there are other, uh, in, particularly in Asia, uh, counterexamples, and we've talked about some of those, but we really haven't gotten into China, and it's mm -hmm. a perfect time to do it since we just talked about ship wars. And you know, one of the thing about ship wars is they're being fought at the national level. Um, you know, decisions are being made in Washington and, and in Beijing that are going to determine who wins this particular battle. Uh, and we don't think that's the case, and genuinely would say that's not the case. So, what about China? Well, if we look at uh, China's history, there was a long period after the original communist revolution where the economy was, or the society as a whole was about as opposite of ingenuism as anti-ingenuism. Uh, you saw even worse things happen in some other Asian countries, but that whole time period was, was a very dark, was the dark ages for ingenuism. Mm. And that changed in 1978. Yep. And that's when liberalization happened. And liberalization is an important concept because it's not just removing rules, but it's actually creating a, an environment, a productive environment for people to apply their ingenuity to choose the problems they're going to work on, the ones that you know, appeal to them, they have knowledge about it, they're passionate about it, and then actually do something that helps them and then helps everyone around them. Uh, China also connected to the world. And one of the basic constructs of ingenuism is that when you start connecting people, it benefits everybody. But if you have a small group and a large group, and you know China, despite being a very populous country, is still only about 15% of the entire global population. I think now it's more like 12% because global population is rising and China's population has peaked. But it's, it's still small compared to the mm -hmm. rest of the world. And so that connection starting in, in 78 had huge benefits for everyone, but in particular for Chinese, that would have been predictable in advance. And that's exactly what happened. Um, the entire world benefited from a global supply chain that took advantage of, of uh, China's comparative advantages. But China completely transformed its economy. It went from one of the poorest countries on earth to one of the richer countries on earth, particularly in aggregate, not necessarily on per capita, but still 
even on per capita, it was an absolute miracle. And, you know, obviously we're biased to say that this was ingenuism at work, and it was. You know, for 30 years, the policy was to move towards, you know, what they would have called a market economy, although in a, a communist society, I'm not sure exactly what that means, because there isn't a guaranteed rule of law. But there certainly were fewer and fewer and fewer, both actual and attempted interventions, and more and more of a culture where people could go out and do what they wanted and work on the problems that interest them and appeal to them and that they thought would be important and then create you know massive companies that have been wildly successful. Yeah, I mean it's 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 a it's a truly an amazing story. I mean I, I remember going for the first time to China in 2005 and uh I never thought much about China. It was this backwater, it was communist so I had this bias of thinking well if it's communist it can't be that successful. It, it, everybody's exaggerating. And then we arrived in Shanghai at night and it just blew my mind. I mean, this was a thriving, successful metropolitan. And uh, it was not communist in the sense that the billboards were larger than Times Square. I mean, advertising for everything, Coca-Cola, Kentucky Fried Chicken, computers, uh, you know, Gucci and uh, Louis Vuitton. So uh, it, it clearly something had happened. So... Uh, and and I got a sense that whatever we have been worried about for the last 20 years in the United States was insignificant as compared to the changes that had happened in China over those 20 years. I mean, it was it truly is astounding. In in, in 1978, as you said, they um, they realized you know they they'd been so isolated. Many of the leaders had never been outside of China, so they didn't know they were behind and uh, they started going to Japan and even to the United States. And suddenly they realized, whoa. And uh, the question was, well, what did they do that worked? It, it, and, and part of it was, I mean, Deng's explicit, uh, Deng Xiaoping, who became the supreme leader of China at the time, his explicit idea was, I don't really know, but let's just try a bunch of stuff and see what happens. And he didn't, when they liberalized, it was interesting, they didn't liberalize all over China. They didn't just do one day, okay, we're privatizing everything and liberalizing everything. They took an area, in this case, South China, close to Hong Kong, and they said, okay, let's let's see what happens. And they basically said, okay, in this area, we're not going to control, we're not going to plan, we're not going to regulate, uh, we're going to encourage foreign investment, we're going to cut for the first time, we're going to encourage people to come from overseas and invest here, and we're just going to watch and see what happens. And it just transformed the place. It just blossomed. And then they, they said, okay, well, let's try that in Shanghai. Oh, it works there as well. And then they kind of, uh, and, and there's still places in China that are really, really poor and really, really backward because they haven't, they haven't brought ingenuism there yet. Um, and so it's, it's a, it's a really interesting laboratory of what works and, uh, and what doesn't, but yeah, for about, what was it 30 years, 30 or so years, they were basically on that path. Um, but things seem to have changed. Well, I think in his ebook, Barry Alton makes uh, an interesting distinction. And the, the book is worth reading just for this distinction, because if you're thinking about industrial policy, um, it's very easy to be sloppy and not be precise about how you are defining industrial policy. And he makes a distinction between what he calls horizontal policy and vertical policy. And horizontal policy would be things like 
improving infrastructure, rationalizing the tax code, um, allowing for decisions to be made at the local level. You know, it would be broad spectrum that applies to everything. And that that is a form of industrial policy. Uh, but what he's interested in is the what most people talk about, which is what he calls vertical industrial policy, which is uh, we're going to build a semiconductor manufacturing industry inside of China, or earlier, we're going to build a, a, a commercial aircraft company inside of China, making specific decisions that don't apply to everybody, but is, is backing one particular goal. And you know, I, I don't know, I, you know, in 1978, I was uh, at barely a teenager and I, I wasn't paying any attention. I don't know that I would believe even what, what people say happened at that time to be fully accurate, not that the people would be lying, but it's hard to go back and reconstruct what happened when you already know the results. Uh, but what clearly, the so the motivations are a mystery to me. You know, Maybe they just ran out of ideas and were like, okay, well, we'll just see what happens because we don't have any more ideas on how to make things work. But it doesn't really matter because the that that moment where you start saying we're going to experiment, if you are interested in results, then you're going to naturally gravitate towards ingenuism because the the pull is so strong because it's so effective. Yep. You know, we could have started this whole discussion of ingenuism at the very beginning, saying the miracle was China from '78 to 2008. Uh, because in, in a sense, that's even more amazing, given where the country started, than, you know, Apple and Google and Microsoft building these, you know, incredibly powerful and, and valuable tech companies. But having, having that said, the vertical versus the horizontal, it, it lets you see really the inflection point that happened sometime around the financial crisis, uh, where China went from having an industrial policy that was very horizontal, which you know you could argue is not an industrial policy because it doesn't differentiate or focus on particular industries. And they're not choosing winners and losers and, and things like that. You're making decisions about what do we need to be successful, and you know we that basically that's the United States economy. You know we have a planned economy in the sense that you know what happens to the inter, in interstate highway system is decided in Washington, with some delegation to the states. That's basically what China was doing. Uh, so moving from horizontal to vertical, you start making a different type of decision. You start deciding that, okay, we need X and we're going to put resources behind X. And that's a, that's a really important distinction because it's a very different type of industrial policy. And that makes the point that if you lump it all together from 78 to, to 2023, you have this very long window where China has been incredibly successful but it's with two, the first two thirds of the period is with one type of industrial policy, which he would say isn't. But I, I think even if you choose not to back any verticals, if you say we're not going to do vertical industrial policy, that's an industrial policy. Just like, you know, a tax, a tax code of, that has a zero rate is that's a that's a choice. That's a tax yep. policy. Yep. But regardless, once you you look at the first 30 years versus the, the next 15 years, what the Chinese government has been doing to try and and foster economic growth has been very different. So, uh, you know, I've, I have a, a theory on why it happened in 2008. Uh, you know, 
And that is that I think they looked at the United States, they looked at the financial crisis, and the lessons it seemed like almost everybody learned from the financial crisis was, you know, capitalism doesn't work, or in the sense that that freedom, that leaving industry alone doesn't work, you need much more government involvement to prevent these kind of awful crises. I think that's the wrong lesson to learn from the financial crisis, but nonetheless, that's the lesson most of the world learned from it. And I think the Chinese look at it and said, we don't want to be like America. And 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 I think they make it made a conscious choice to to look at other models. Uh, South Korea has a slightly different model had, which involves a lot more government involvement in the uh, the vertical. Uh, you could interpret Japan's model early on as being different, much more uh, vertical. Although Japan has stagnated for thirty plus years, maybe as a consequence of that. Um, it's also an interesting story, the, the story of Japan, its rise, and then it's flattening out. Uh, but there really was a shift, I think, in the United States, globally, and in China, in terms of its attitudes towards experimentation, because, and this is why sometimes the story, what we, the story we accept about events in the world makes a huge difference for the future. Yes, and that's why I think ingenuism is so important, because if you set up guardrails, you say we're not going to sacrifice these things. So we we look at the financial crisis and we say, OK, there were clearly problems that wasn't ideal. We could potentially do better. Uh, then you have to say, OK, what are we going to do better? And if you're you know, you know, if you're a top government official, you're likely to default towards, well, we're going to going to tell them what to do so they don't do that again. Uh, and there's a cost to that. Uh, yeah. And if you're not willing to bear the cost of that, you're forced to look at more uh, in creative, maybe even experiment some for solutions on how to have that not happen again. And this is something that, as you point out, it comes up over and over. You have crises. Sometimes they're global. Sometimes they're national, sometimes they're horizontal, sometimes they're vertical. You know, we have a, a vertical crisis in crypto because you know, we, we have exchanges that were fraud and they were played a big role in the market. And so what do you learn from that? Well, if you take, if you start with, we're not going to sacrifice experimentation, learning, we're going to allow failure and we're going to we're going to move forward and we're going to get better because we learn from that failure, then you're forced to look at a set of solutions. Or, or try and discover a, a set of solutions that don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah, I mean, and that's that's the beauty, I think, of the the kind of original American model in the sense of the a very small role for the government, even in the horizontal, never mind the vertical, no role really in the vertical. And then, yes, bad things are going to happen. You know, the fraudsters exist, and uh, people make mistakes, and people overinvest, underinvest, whatever those mean. Uh, but if you but but markets tend to the the tendency is to keep experimenting, keep figuring out that incentive to to make money, to create, to build, to to produce stuff is continues to be there, and therefore uh, you, through iteration you find a better path rather than through uh, kind of a central authority. And yeah, it's 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 sad to see the world moving away from it, and it was so exciting. I have to say, because I was I, I, I was there in China repeatedly over the years, it was so exciting to see China go through that process and see the wealth creation and the energy it produced and the excitement within China and the rising standard of living and quality of life. Uh, 
it, it, it really is sad to see them uh, turning away from that. And they've done it slowly. I think they came to certain conclusions in a way. They started with the industrial planning. They started to think about industries they wanted to dominate and invest in. And some may be partially successful, maybe batteries and solar panels and others. They've been so far failed. Chips is a good example. They, they, while they produce some good low-level chips, they haven't been able to produce any of the high-level chips. Uh, so it's 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 going to be an interesting evolving story in China, and to see the consequence the economic growth of of the change. Well, I'll put a stake in the ground because from an ingenuism perspective, growth will clearly slow, yeah. and uh, I, I think that it's a it's a significant problem both in terms of having government policy that replaces individual ingenuity. But it, it's also just the absolute environment changing. I mean, you have Chinese billionaires leaving. You have Jack Ma leaving the country. Uh, and and I, I mean, I would have left earlier, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, yeah. There's nothing against that, except it's going to impact the, the Chinese opportunities going forward and the dynasticism there going forward. And you know, it's really easy to, and it's another place where you have to be precise. You know, you think about industrial policy and you say, okay, well, obviously AI and big data are going to be big going forward. I mean, it's just obvious everyone accepts yep. it. I accept it. Yep. But what does that actually mean? What do we mean by AI? What do we mean by big data? And, and when you start defining it, they're very general, they're very horizontal definitions. Uh, but when you start actually making decisions on how you're going to support these particular initiatives, it ends up being vertical industrial policy. And some of it uh, will likely work out. Uh, if you ignore the opportunity costs, you'll have some where you know, and, and batteries and solar panels may be the best examples. And we haven't really looked at this, but there are definitely going to be successes. Yep. It's the number of successes compared to what it would have been if you had really let in ingenuity blossom. And then there are going to be massive failures. And are you going to learn from those failures? Are you going to even acknowledge those failures? Are you going to keep dumping more resources behind them? And we both know the answer to that. It's almost certainly going to be, we're not going to acknowledge them. We're not going to, and so we're not going to learn from them and we're going to end up wasting tons of money. So this, this particular shift in industrial policy that, uh, I, that you say from your observation that Barry Nowton says, so I'll just accept it started in around 2010, maybe a little earlier, but was gradual and accelerated. And you can see that like with the 2015 technology um, goals of making everything in yep. China, that that's a huge, a, a gradual, but huge move away from ingenuism. So in 2023, I don't think we'll, China will ever see the kind of economic growth in legitimate numbers. Uh, that it saw even in the 2010s, much less in the the 30 years of perfection. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right, and and I think they they have an additional problem, which is which solidifies kind of the 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 politics of not admitting mistakes and not retracting. And that is authoritarianism. They they basically an elected a ruler for life. Um, it, it, you know, his his goal is to maintain power at all costs and. They've they've proven the willing a willingness to do whatever it takes to maintain that power. So you don't get that. Although I'm not sure the system works very well in the United States these days, but you don't get uh, the ability to to change and to experiment politically to 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 move away from a bad policy towards a new policy to 
to penalize politicians for doing for doing uh, for doing bad things. So uh, sadly, I think for the Chinese, they're stuck with this path at least for now, until there's significant change over there. Yes, uh, if you if you have a culture of not acknowledging mistakes and learning from them, uh, that's going to be a disaster. And and usually, and, and even if people are, uh, what's the right way to put it? If there are good intention, uh, they will typically keep doing more of the same thing, even though that's you know one of the definitions of insanity. <laughs> Uh, because if you're attached to this not being having been a bad decision in the past, then you have to find some way to make it work in the future. And the only thing we know how to do is throw more resources at it and hope for the best. Yep. Yeah. All right, good. Well, let's hope uh, China somehow finds a way to uh, reverse these trends. Uh, they've done it before. After all, they did they did reverse things in 78. Um, and, uh, and let's hope... Uh, the rest of the world learns the right lessons from China, not the wrong lessons, because learning the wrong lessons would be a, a disaster we will all feel. That's right. And this is the last reason why we, even when we talk about global connection, we're not interested in a global government, because then there would be no alternative yep. policies. And uh, you know, we have some counterfactual, but if, um, if, China hadn't made that that turn in '78. Uh, it would probably look a lot like North Korea. Yep. Uh, but we only know that because they made the turn and North Korea didn't. So hopefully we we end up with a very connected planet, but where everyone is still free to try and experiment and learn. Well, and the good news is there was a South Korea to North Korea as well, and the South Korea pivoted not just on economics but also in politics and in that sense is is probably a will continue to be a dynamic place